Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. We're picking up in the middle of Genesis 47 tonight. We got through 47, 12 or 13 last time. And I'm going to back it up to verse 11 is where we'll start off tonight. Joseph and Jacob have reunited the family. They're all together. There was much weeping and, and, and joy and celebration. And the Pharaoh granted Joseph's family the land of Goshen, the land of abundance, where they're going to be isolated from the Egyptians, but protected by the Egyptians at the same time. So we are getting to the end of Genesis because we're wrapping up this narrative of God making his own nation or his own people. And now this nation has a place. There's 70 heads of family throughout the, so the 12 sons have, have made more sons and it's quickly exponentially growing as a family and they are all settling in Goshen. But what's left in the book of Genesis are a couple things. One, we haven't seen the death of Jacob or Israel as the third patriarch and Genesis ends upon his death and the repercussions of that. And we haven't seen the blessings that Jacob will give to all of his sons because no normally we saw Abraham bless Isaac and Isaac bless Jacob. But in the end of the book, they're going to bless every tribe of Israel with a prophecy. And so we'll see that and that's happening soon. And then the last but not least is we haven't seen what's going to happen with the rest of the famines. We still got, we're in the third year of the famine because the first year, they came and got grain and left Simeon in jail. The second year, they came back for more grain, and hey, it's Joseph, and he's alive. And now we're in year three of the famine. And the rest of 47, 11, and as, and as we get into 48 tonight, is really dealing with Joseph as administrator. Um, some people believe this is, in the same way Joseph's mirrored Jesus throughout, that this is a mirroring of when Jesus rules on the earth, that there will be a absolute and complete monarchy at some point with Jesus in charge. And they believe this is reflection of the end times in the same way that other things reflected. So in verse 11, and Joseph situated his father and brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers and all his brothers household with bread according to the number of their families. Notice how the families eating bread, God's people are protected. But notice how in verse 13, that paragraph is a complete contrast. Now there was no bread in all the land. So everybody's starving to death, but the Israelites are eating well. And that's A, going to help them breed and populate as a nation, but it's also just indicative of even though there's trials and tribulation all over the planet, the people of God are protected and, and, and kept safe in this. Um, again, if you reflect that to end times prophecy, even though there'll be a time of t tribulation, whether or not God's people are taken away from the planet or if they're just protected by God, the promise is that they'll be protected even when there's turmoil. So verse 13, there's no bread in the land. For the famine was severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. So this languishing that's happening um, is a... Apparently, the famine is much harder in Egypt and Canaan than it is in other places around the world. So five more years to go. Verse 14, And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into the Pharaoh's house. So they've been planning for this, and it implies that Joseph had been paying people for their food. So they bring their food in, and he pays the money, and at some point... Uh, the money is not really in exchange anymore because people don't have anything to exchange for it. Um, so Joseph as a leader is divinely inspired and he's not just taking things by force. He's actually paying people, which made sense in the bumper crop years. Remember, he paid them for growing as much food as possible. So getting as much as he could out of the bumper years. And at this point now, he's got all that money that he's been 
paying people for it, all that money is coming right back into Pharaoh's household because they're paying the money for more grain. So knowing how the stock market is going to go would be a good reason to know when to buy and when to sell. And Joseph is essentially using God's inspired knowledge, has used that to basically take all the money into Pharaoh's house at this point. And at some pe point, people don't even have money to give. Languishing, the Hebrew word laha, is to faint. Uh, so when Canaan and Egypt are fainting, it means people are passing out from hunger. It's getting to be that bad as a country. Verse 15. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt, people don't have it anymore. And in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread for why should we die in your presence for the money has failed. In other words, we don't have money to give you, but we're starving to death. So things are getting pretty bad in year three of the famine. There's a problem. And at this point, if Joseph can't use currency, anytime money runs out, you have this massive threat of an uprising. But notice that there's no uprising. There isn't even a hint of people getting there. They actually go to Joseph with their problems, which shows that after seven years of, of feast and two years of famine, they completely trust Joseph's leadership. And if you remember back when he first took this position, he traveled through all the towns and met the people, which says something about establishing that foundation, which now that's paying off for Joseph, is that they trust that he's got a plan. And he does, because we'll see how he does this. What he has to do right now, because there's no economy, is he has to completely switch the economic system, and he has to do it without rioting and without um, deaths and without chaos. And he does that. Then Joseph said, give your livestock and I'll give you bread for your livestock if the money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of herds and the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock. So he started using livestock as a money source. This solves the problem in two different ways. First, families don't have as many mouths to feed, so they need less grain. And second, it alleviates the... Uh, the need for, for a money or a currency system. What it does do is that it adds a lot more livestock into Pharaoh's household. And remember, well, no, you don't because you guys missed last week. But this morning, if you remember, Pharaoh said, if there's any good people, I could use some more herdsmen. So part of what's going on when Pharaoh welcomes the Israelites is he knows that, uh, here he asks, if, hey, if there's any of you uh, in your family that know how to do herdsmanship, I need that. And this is why, uh, as they were helping with that. So more work for Joseph. He's getting to be a larger and larger administrative center of power. Um, but at the same time, he's caring for the people and he's keeping them alive. Verse 18, when that year ended, they came to him the next year. So now we're in year one, two, three, four of the famine. I should have looked that up. I don't have a note. We will not hide from my Lord that our money's gone. Okay, so wait, the Israelites come back in year two. Year three, the money runs out. Year four, the livestock starts getting used, right? So I think this is year five. We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. And also the Lord now has all the herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. So why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread, and we and our land, and we will be servants of the Pharaoh. Just give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So now in year five, Joseph has to shift the economic system again. This is not an easy, easy thing to do, but he's already ready for it. Um, at this point, we have to deal with slavery because not here it is, and we don't skip things, right? So this is our first mention of kind of slavery in the Bible. The way the Bible presents it is people were starving to death and being a slave was better than starving to death. That is not a justification for slavery. So in the, in the 1800s, they were using passages like this in the Bible to say, see, the Bible has slavery. It's right there. But that's not what's going on here. Uh, this is a solution to not having people die, right? It is not a permanent economic system, and we'll see that when we see what, jo what Joseph does. And when you look at the law in Leviticus, there's a, an idea of how to get people out of slavery, that slavery should never be permanent, that there's a year of jubilee where if you're enslaved, you're out. And you're not a permanent lifetime slave ever. And if you really want to know what the Bible thinks about slavery, Paul's letter in Philemon tells you about what it means, what you have to do. It, given that they had slavery, how should a godly person handle that? But obviously the Bible doesn't support enslaving other human beings. And I don't think this passage does either. Um, but 
remember at this period of history, there's no banking system, there's no schooling, there's no social services, there's no homeless shelters, there's no caring and sharing hands. There's nothing, there's no way for a poor person to survive without selling the only thing that they can't give away, which is their own work. So the people coming to Joseph are saying, we'll work for you if you just feed us. And that's kind of the trade-off. In some ways, that's a form of employment, not slavery, because working for food is actually happens all the time. If you work in a restaurant, they don't pay you much. They assume you're eating. Um, easy to make the blind assumption that the world has always had a working class. Um, we can do that from our perspective but it's really hard to put yourself in the perspective of this history where they didn't have a working class of people. They had the Pharaoh and everybody else. And there really were no classes like in that kind of way. So ultimately you have your work. Uh, archeology span records actually back this up. Private ownership existed in ancient Egypt up until this, this famine. And so we think of Egypt with slaves and it really didn't have slaves prior to this period of time. This is where slavery kind of began in Egypt. Um, so I don't know if I need to say much more slavery is pretty much unequivocally evil in the Bible and this famine is not presented as a good thing all of these measures by Joseph are measures of desperation in a time when he's trying to save as many lives as he can and I think in the next verses we start to see like how much forethought Joseph had to save lives during seven years of famine because he knew this was coming then in verse 20, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh and for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Don't skip over line 21 because Joseph is clearly, you can't move all the farm people into the cities Overnight, You can't just do that. You have to prepare for that. So he's built places for these folks to live. He's prepared to migrate an entire people, an entire nation from country to city. And there's no other society in the world that's done this without chaos and without um, revolts or some sort of complete upheaval. The best example you can come up with is the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, where the jobs were in the cities and the farms were getting harder and harder to manage. That said, if he moves them into the cities, he has much less distance to transport the food and he can distribute the food much easier in the cities than he can out in the country. Um, but it shows you like the national coordination that God is using Joseph and these skills of management that Joseph has to take care of this. And the care that Joseph put into this is pretty stunning. So he urbanizes Egypt, creates another economic shift and one of the most peaceful massive shifts of an economy the world has ever seen. And it's really hard to find a comparable period of history where people shift their economy like this with as much organization as they have. Verse 22, the only, only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their land. So this creates in Egypt a permanent and powerful priest class. This economic model is pretty much Egypt right up until the Turks take over in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, this goes all the way up through the modern age. This priest class in Egypt is massive, wealthy. Um, there's no independent land or wealth outside the priests. Uh, and notice that Joseph didn't give these orders. This exception to Joseph's plan, they make a real point of it twice, in fact, that this is based on Pharaoh's insistence that the priests are left alone. Joseph honors it, he's humble, he submits to his boss, um, but there's no way to hold Joseph accountable for what, what these priests are going to do. God doesn't really take advantage of people or claim special status with his priests. And this is, I think, one of, the, one of the things that I felt like really resonated with me when I read through the law the first time. God doesn't take his priests and make them better than the people. In fact, the Levites don't even get land. The Egyptian priests do, but the Levites don't. And the Levites don't even get like a means by which to take care of themselves. They're dependent on the tribes they live in to take care of them. They have to get these tithe gifts, which makes the priests like the servants of the people, or it should, because those priests, those tithes aren't necessarily have-tos, they're get-tos. And the way God sets it up, I think, with his people and in the church today, is if someone's not serving their congregation, the congregation withers up and goes away. 
So it creates a priest class that's not above the people. It's a priest class that serves the people or washes their feet like Jesus did. Did and I think that's pretty cool, but not so with Pharaoh. His priests are special, and they get special treatment. Verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, "Indeed, I've bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one fifth to Pharaoh. This is the same amount that he asked during years of bounty. He hasn't changed his taxes. He could. He could totally take advantage of these people, but he doesn't. And look at what he does. Four fifths." are your own to have as the seed for your field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones. In other words, he defies all of human history with this move politically. For me, this is political science geekdom. It never has it been where there's been a central government that gets more and more powerful that they give more and more back to the people. Most of the time when central governments get more and more powerful, they take more from the people. But Joseph doesn't do that at all. He resists the temptation to do that. And he actually sets in place a banking system that is going to keep these poor people on their property and lets them continue to work their land for profit. That's stunning. Imagine in America, if in the 1930s, when we hit the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, imagine if the banks said to the farmers, you know what? We own your land, we own your farm, but we're gonna give you seed so you can plant that farm and you can keep 80% of your profits to repurchase your farms. We wouldn't have really had a Great Depression if we would have done this. If we would have followed the model that's here, we would have kept people in their farms and, and, and kept people healthy and kept people eating and working. And part of the Great Depression is they couldn't sell their crops to anybody because nobody had money. The money system had failed. And what Joseph does here prevents a Great Depression, keeps people working instead of just languishing, um, and, he, and he actually makes a means by which they can do it. This tax system also holds through the 1800s when the Turks took over Egypt. So it doesn't change from what Joseph set up. And I think it's pretty cool that of all the nations that we've seen in the Bible, the 70 nations in Genesis 10, that really only two of them still exist, Israel and Egypt. And those two have been on the world scene for a very long time. And I think in part because they were blessed by the leadership of Joseph and they've stuck to it. So when the Turks took over, um, they asked for two thirds of all income comes to the government. So when they changed that 20% rule in Egypt, they actually flipped it around and they took 66% of everything people made. And if it just out of curious trivia fact, the leader of the Turks at this time's name was Muhammad Ali. So just so you know that not the boxer, but that's the real Muhammad Ali, the one that he was named after was this mighty man who took over territory and then took advantage of the people that he took over. Um, Not exactly the kind of guy you want to name yourself after, but there you go. Joseph is actually asking for a pretty reasonable tax. Here in America, we pay around 30%. I would love to pay 20% in my taxes. That would be great. So it gives you an incentive to work hard because if you work hard and you benefit yourself, there's a value in it. And most capitalist economies get that until capitalist companies start taking advantage of it and making things more and more expensive. So it's a really tough thing when you look at politics and government. Ultimately, this is one of the only governments that in a time of crisis takes care of its people. And you just don't see this. Most of the time, governments take advantage during times of crisis. So... Joseph has total power here, total authority, and he doesn't use it to do anything but save lives. And I think that's pretty nifty. When you put God in charge, that's a good thing. So they said, verse 25, you've saved our lives. The people recognize this is Joseph has had the plan that's kept us alive. Let's find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one fifth except for all the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So each year there's extreme hardship and each year Joseph has a new plan. And I think that's pretty cool. Joseph doesn't use it to do anything, but he has government with a light touch. Now I can bring in China. (laughs) One of the things that was cool in China is when you looked at their newspapers, did I tell you all this? They had these wonderful newspapers that essentially were look at how horrible the rest of the world is and look at how great China is, right? It's just this kind of... It's not fake news, it's Chinese news. It's the news in China. 
that everybody else is screwed up, but China has got it right. We know how to live in China. And unless you're not in China, you don't realize it. It's pretty tough to pull off that kind of narrative that you tell your people. So when they come back and say, you saved our lives, I think it's because Joseph actually did, and they actually recognized his leadership was saving their lives. And I think that's pretty cool, because as a government, we can often tell our people what to think. Um, and those rights and freedoms, I think, come with a godly moral assumption. In fact, I think godliness or moral morality requires God to make freedom happen. Joseph actually gives his people freedom with a strict hand and a sovereign government. This is what we really want in a government. We want a government that's totally in control, but totally cares for us too. And it's what we want like police officers. We want police officers to keep order and to have control, but we don't want them to take advantage of us, right? That's when there's a line that gets crossed that we don't like. And any government's like that. You can't really have a right to property unless people believe they shouldn't steal, right? Because it implied the two go together. The freedom comes with the moral code. You can't really have a freedom of the press if people in your country stop believing that you shouldn't lie, right? Freedom of press requires that we believe that you don't lie, right? Freedom to bear arms implies that most of the people in your country obey the moral code, thou shalt not kill. It's when people start killing that we have a problem with something like the right to bear arms, right? When you say you shouldn't worship false idols, we can assume that then we can have a freedom of religion. But all of our freedoms, everything in government, all moral codes are based on the fact that most of the people in the country follow a godly moral assumption, right? Or the whole thing breaks down, which is in countries where the moral code breaks down, the freedoms and the rights break down too because they tend to go together. You have to then start controlling the press like China does if people are, are lying and using the press to lie. If you get too much fake news, you have to start controlling the news. And now you've got supreme central authority and a government that takes advantage of the people. So Joseph doesn't do that. He's got supreme power and authority, but he uses a very light touch with his people. He doesn't use that to dominate. He uses that to help and serve. Point made? I could go off on that because I used to be a political science guy, but okay. I just think it's brilliant. I think it's wonderful how those things are all tied together. Verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, which means land of abundance. And they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. This is important, remember, because the whole narrative of Genesis is I'm going to build a nation under Abraham, under Isaac, under Jacob. So they're multiplying is a big deal. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Remember before he said, I'm good to die when he met Joseph? I'm all good. That's all I need in life. And then he goes another 17 years. So he said he was 130 when he was hanging out with Pharaoh. So if he lived another 17, that means Jacob lived to 147 years old, uh, which is what it says. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Wow. Let's summarize. Jacob spent his first 77 years at home as a single guy, right? He's a single guy for a long time, so nothing wrong with that. <laughs> then he spent 20 years with Laban, got two of his wives and their two servants, which he kind of turned into his wives. Then he spent 33 years in Canaan, and now he spent his last 17 years in Egypt. He's gone through then four major life changes in his life. It's been a struggle, just like he told Pharaoh, my, my, my life has been a struggle, and it was. Uh, it says they multiplied. Henry Morris calculated the initial group of five people, Jacob and his four wives, grew into a clan of about 100 within 50 years. That 100 then would include the 70 from Genesis 46:27, plus a few wives and sons that are mentioned earlier, and grandchildren, but the growth rate then is 6% per year. Doing the numbers for us logical sequential people, at a rate of 6% per year, there would easily be several million descendants by the time of Exodus in 430 years. So when they leave in Exodus, they say there were 600,000 men. If you count women, that makes 1.2 million people. That number is still small because it probably doesn't include the children that would have made the Exodus with them. So in a 430 years, we're going to go from this group of, say, 100, and we're going to go into about maybe 1.82 million people leaving Egypt. Um, assuming they're protected, which they are, Egypt's army protects them, and they don't have major problems, and they're getting through this famine by eating bread every day. So they're in good shape. 
frankly, the growth rate here is a significant point of consternation. Anyone who says the earth is extremely old and that humans have evolved for a long period of time has to deal with the growth rate, which is ridiculously simple to calculate. And it says that the humans in our current form have been on this planet for about 6,000 years. You can't go back any further because you run out of people. Eventually the growth rate shrinks down to nothing. And that's including famines and plagues and everything else is that you really, even under the worst conditions, humans populate really fast. Not in the US, so from our perspective, it's easy to believe it's a slow growth thing because we have birth control. We don't even know what it's like for families to run around with 11, 12 people. Not just that weird family at church, right? But all the families. Like when we went through the genealogy in the last chapter, all the families had eight, nine, 10 kids. That's a normal thing. So as you start off in your young marriage, you know, we'll see you in 10, 10, 12 kids later. Um, unless there's some sort of human intervention to stop that growth rate, humans uh, populate like rabbits. We're really good at it. Um, so the, the other thing, the other problem that most people have with anything older than six to 10,000 years is that humans have this nasty habit of when really bad things happen, like a famine or a plague, we write, the, we write those things down. So in every major culture around the world, when something really bad happens, like a massive flood or wars or famine, they go into history books and we teach our children about these hard times we went through. So it's not hard to identify when population rates have slowed because humans write them down in all of our major cultures. Even cave drawings are generally about hunts that went bad, <laughs> right? This is when our king died and we see these kinds of moments uh, where people record the things that are the worst things in their life, and they also record the best things in their life. So here we are. Really, this is the end of the book of Genesis, right? Um, the next couple verses, we're going to see the uh, um, we're going to see the last piece, which is going to be the last two chapters, three chapters, and we're going to wrap up kind of these moments with Jacob as he's giving the blessings. Um, but this is it. Now we're kind of just getting some summative statements. Last few thoughts, I think of it as the credits rolling at the end of the movie, right? And you got the person still talking and this is what happened to everybody kinds of thing. But Genesis is done and for 430 years, this is the scriptures. This is it. This is all they had to look for Messiah. This is what they had with the promises of God. Um, and God's going to add to that book, thankfully, because some of us aren't smart enough to get everything out of one book. We need more Bible to figure this out. Uh, when the time drew near, Israel must die. He called his son Joseph and said to him, and in my head I hear Yoda's voice, because I this this old guy who's been crippled, they carry him around on a mat, you know, I just I can't help it. But I'll try to read in a normal voice. Now if I have now favor in your sight I have found. And no, it's now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh. Remember this is one of the things we've done before when people are being serious and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. <laughs> Let me die with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Remember there's one cave where Abraham's buried with Sarah and Isaac's buried um, with uh, Rebecca and, and he wants to be buried there too. Carry his bones back. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you've said. And then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed, which is not meaning he's dead. It means he fell asleep because he's got more to do here in the next little bit. So Jacob aligns with the inheritance, the blessing, not Egypt. Um, and he basically, what, what I mean by that is he doesn't see himself. He's been here 17 years, but he's not Egyptian. When we live somewhere for 17 years, we tend to think we're from that area, um, but he doesn't. He still sees himself as my blessings back in Canaan. That's where I want my body and that's where I want my bones. And I think that's kind of cool that Jacob has held his hope right up until this time uh, and wants to be buried back there. So, And it's Israel, not Jacob. I'm using the wrong name. In Genesis 48, again, I'm going to move pretty quick through these next passages because... We really are at the end of the book, and this is just kind of wrapping things up. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick, 
and he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob, by the way, I'm going through this and the whole time I'm going, Manasseh and Ephraim, why do I keep wanting to say Ephraim and Manasseh? Like, oh my goodness, like I, all, I keep get flipping it in my head and then I got through here and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember now. <laughs> and Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. He has to get told this because his eyes are probably failing at 147 years old. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty has appeared to me at Luz, which is Bethel, uh, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So he's basically saying, Remember, Joseph, Egypt's not our home. We've got a promise, an everlasting promise back in Canaan. So that core promise comes from, and I think this is kind of cool, because he quotes that God Almighty appeared to him, but God's pretty consistent in how he talks, because this looks a lot like Genesis 17.2, which makes the promise of multiplication, nations, kings, and an everlasting possession. In other words, God's fairly consistent between Abraham and Jacob. He's saying the same stuff. We get an explanation of why Joseph's the one of the tribes later. Um, and, uh, and I wonder sometimes if the idea of an everlasting possession, I wonder if it's actually come true yet. Because the possession list, and when he describes the land of Israel, it's much bigger than the land they currently have right now. And you wonder if this is a reflection of end times when Joseph's in charge and he's been managing things and he's the king with total authority with a soft touch. If this everlasting possession is actually still to come when Israel will actually inhabit Canaan forever. Um, and that right now they're just sojourners, a lot like jo Jacob described himself to the Pharaoh. So I don't know if it's an Alpha and Omega kind of thing, but I was just thinking that thought with ever everlasting possession. Um, and now verse 5, now two of your sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, he's, he flips the names, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine as Reuben and Simeon. So they shall be mine. Verse five, this is really kind of cool. Notice that Israel flips the names. He doesn't say Manasseh, who's firstborn in Ephraim. He says Ephraim and Manasseh, and he says they're going to be mine like Reuben and Simeon. You wonder if Reuben and Simeon screwed up so bad that he's actually taking Ephraim and Manasseh and making them first and second born. So they're going to be like Reuben and Simeon to me. They're going to be to me. In other words, they're going to take their places. And those two kids are no longer your kids. They're my kids. Because there's this everlasting possession and, and whatever, it matters where I place them in the pecking order. But I'm going to place them first. And sure enough, Ephraim becomes the largest of the tribes and is blessed the most of all the tribes. And at some point, the northern kingdom is called Ephraim uh, and or Israel when they split. Uh, that's actually all going to be one kind of thing. So your offspring, verse 6, whom you beget after them shall be yours. <laughs> the rest of your kids are yours, but Ephraim and Manasseh, they're my kids. They'll be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. Essentially, he's honoring Joseph by giving two of Joseph's kids full status as Jacob's kids. Doesn't matter that they were born in Egypt. Doesn't matter that they're half Egyptian or African. Uh, they will be part of the inheritance forever. In other words, this whole idea of don't intermarry probably had more to do with the idolatry of the Canaanites than it had to do with their race, right? Because clearly God doesn't have a problem with race and intermarriage, right? Which we've seen a lot of in Genesis. The problem God had was that those marriages to the Hittites and the Canaanites came with idol worship coming into the household. But in this case... Uh, Joseph isn't letting that into his household, and we see that because of his kids being ready to be fully adopted into this nation. So they take the place. Remember, Simeon was a murderer, Genesis 34. And remember, Reuben was sleeping around with women. So he was, uh, the sin of lust, I think, kind of took over in Reuben's life. So Jacob's saying, look, I'm going to take your two awesome kids, and they're going to get first and second rank in my family. So... This makes for a big mess throughout the rest of the Old Testament. When they list the 12 tribes of Israel, there's 20 different ways that they get listed, like in what order they get listed in birth order. So throughout the rest of the Bible, how they organize the tribes of Israel says something about what we're supposed to know or hear about that. 
but the birth order, the ranking is super important to the Jewish people. Um, but at this point now, Israel, by taking on these two, Israel actually has 13 sons at this point. Why did he do that? 12 is a good number. And remember, not all of the tribes are going to get an inheritance. The Levites will not get land. So there will be 12 tribes of Israel at some point. Um, 12 is associated with government or administration throughout the Bible. Just as a few examples, there are 12 apostles. There are 12 princes of Ishmael, 12 pillars, 12 gems on the robes of the little priests, right? 12 cakes in the temple, 12 platters, 12 bowls, 12 spies, 12 memorials, 12 governors under Solomon, 12 people in every worship team that David had. He had multiple worship teams. They all had 12 people. So they were Hillsong bands, right? <laughs> um, 12 hours in a day, 12 months in a year, 12 Ephesian men led the church. There are 12 gates in heaven. There are 12 angels. There are 12 foundations to the earth and there are 12 fruits on the fruit tree of life in the book of Revelation. This was a fun word search. <laughs> 12 keeps showing up. It's a number that matters. But as for me, when I came to Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, and that is Bethlehem. Funny, I recognize the name Bethlehem from somewhere, mm -hmm. but that's where Rachel gets buried. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? I think God picked Bethlehem because he's loving on Jacob, right? And he's going to make Bethlehem a pretty important town. It's just a small little town, a bunch of sheep herders and some barns. But God's going to elevate that town, I think, to honor Rachel. Because there were lots of little podunk towns all over Israel that God could have picked for the Messiah. But he picked Bethlehem. Not that Joseph's line is the line of Messiah, but I think God really loved Jacob and he loved Rachel. So he wants to just honor and bless them. And I think that's just a cool thought. I wonder if the little stable that Jesus was actually born in, I wonder what the proximity of that is to wherever Rachel was buried. And I think when we get to heaven, sometimes that's one of the cool questions to go, was there something there, God? And, it, and God will be like, yeah, actually, they built that stable right on top of where a grave was. And I think that'd be really cool. Like, anyways. And yeah, Jacob was watching all this happen, and we thought, oh, we should do Bethlehem. That'd be cool. It's not one of the big cities that gets celebrated, but here's a great humble place to make a start. Anyways, just a thought. So verse eight, then Israel saw Joseph's son and said, well, who are these? Which is a great grandfather thing. Who are these kids that walked into my room? Joseph said to his father, they're my sons, which is a lie. At this point, Jacob has made them his sons, whom God has given me in this place, which is truth. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. At this point, notice that Israel is not pounding and moaning, moaning in his bedroom. He's a 147-year-old guy, needs strength to sit up, but he is running this family. He is the spiritual head of his home. Not that he's bossing everybody around, but that he's giving blessings, and he's, a, he's encouraging people, and he's lifting people up. Israel is back in line with God, and he's not struggling with leadership at this point. And there's no hesitation. Bring them into me, and I will bless them. Just like he is blessing Pharaoh, he comes back to Jesus and he's blessing everybody. And I think that's just a fun moment for him. Verse 10, now the eyes of Israel dim with age, so you could not see. Then Joseph brought them near and he kissed them and embraced them. Which for the kids had to be an awkward moment, like grandpa's kissing me again. The Isra then Israel said to Joe, yeah, when you were a kid, did you ever have one like great grandma came to kiss you and it was just a moment you wish you could avoid, you know? <laughs> And it felt weird. <laughs> yeah. I had a good grandma, by the way. Grandma, I don't mean you. I, somebody else. Uh, and Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has shown me your offspring. So this is even better. Not only do I get to see you, Joseph, I get to see these awesome kids. He's just got good things pouring out of his mouth. So Joseph brought them to from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. So he's the second in command in Egypt, but look at the heartfelt respect he has for his father and the humility he has to, think of this, you're second in command of anything, you're not bowing down unless you feel great reverence 
and humility for that person. And, and Joseph's got no problems bowing down in front of his dad, putting his face to the earth. That's not a halfway bow or a you know a gentle bow on a piece of carpet. That's a full-on put your face on the earth kind of bow. And that's you can see Joseph's heart and what kind of guy he is at this point. He doesn't let who he is define who he is or his position to define who he is in God. In good or bad fortune, Joseph has always been humble and he's always served and he's never had a problem with authority. Israel talks directly to God, so Joseph um, should does and, and is respecting that. And Joseph in verse 13 took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards his father's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand towards his father's right hand and he brought them near. See what Joseph's doing there? I'm going to put my oldest kid by your right hand, which is, sorry, honey, she's, she's a lefty, which in the Bible is seen as the, you know, the, the stronger of the two hands. And he puts his younger kid towards the left. Um, so even though we see these two men doing the right thing and whatnot, we still see this tendency to think that God's going to pick people based on how we see things. And God just never does that. Um, and, uh, Biblically, uh, the favored status being on the right is one thing, but also biblically, God chooses the left-handed person to be the top. So he actually picks the left um, instead of his right, which, just so you know, he loves lefties too. In this family, we know that Israel called Rachel his right hand, his helper, his strength, his favorite. Verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger and the left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly for Manasseh was the firstborn. Knowingly. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's pretending he's old man. Yeah, he's going to die soon, but he still knows what he's doing. It reminded me of my grandma. <laughs> she would like, some of the cousins would kind of pick on her because she would tell long stories and whatever. And when Steph first met her, Steph goes, do you, see that they're picking on you and grandma just looks to her and she goes oh i know i know they're picking on me and it was just one of those things where some i think old people know more than we give them credit for they they fake like they're senile sometimes and i think it's a good trick and i got to remember that for when i'm an old man <laughs> um then they never see it coming verse 15 and he blessed joseph and he said well he's got his hands on both kids heads but he blesses joseph and says, God, before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angels redeem me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So Joseph gets the same blessing for both of his sons via Joseph, gives one blessing on both sons. The God who's fed me is pretty accurate. Um, uh, in the Hebrew, the God who fed the God who has fed me could accurately also be translated in a slightly different way, and I like the other way better. The God who has shepherded me, and if that's the case, this is the first use of the word shepherding or the metaphor of God being a shepherd. It's the first time we see that in the Bible. Is Jacob's blessing to his two sons good for Bible trivia? Verse 17, now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Well, that's not, that's, well, come on. And again, we just see this again and again. Humans think they know better than God. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it and put it from Ephraim's head on the man and says, you're getting it wrong, dad. And Joseph said to his father, that didn't take long, right? The honeymoon, it's over. It's come on, dad. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. You put, put your right hand on his head. And his father refused. So he's a crusty old man. And he says, I know, my son, I know. And he shall become a people and he shall be great. And truly his, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. It's interesting that he has no doubt about what's going to happen. And you only get that from God. So, and he says both tribes are going to be blessed. Historically, they both are. Ephraim does grow to be the larger of the largest of the tribes and becomes the whole northern kingdom in Isaiah 7. The kingdom's even called Ephraim. Uh, firstborn's a position. It's not an actual birth order. That's why Joseph's upset. He's messing this up, but he should know better. He got the cloak from Jacob, which 
was an indication of a position in the family. And he got that position and his brothers got super angry about it, which makes sense because Jacob was calling Joseph the firstborn. He'll get the largest portion of the inheritance. Jeremiah 31, 9 says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. That's not a mistake in the Bible. This is the scene where he actually gets anointed firstborn, which is why I think Ephraim and Manasseh, which now we can say them in the right order, Ephraim and Manasseh take the place of Reuben and Simeon. Remember that? Because now at this point, officially, Ephraim's been entitled the firstborn, which both of all of this is to honor Joseph. It's what Jacob wanted to do from day one when he gave him the, the cloak that says he's the boss. It's the very thing the brothers got upset about. Are they going to get upset again? Because now it's official. By the way, this is the same principle that's in play with King David, and it's the because he wasn't the firstborn, but he's called the firstborn, right? It's also the same thing that comes into play with Jesus. Uh, Jesus was the actual firstborn, um, but this is where you can call someone firstborn without a birth order really being addressed, that they're the chosen of God is what that kind of means. Um, so verse 20, we'll wrap this up. He blessed them that day saying, "You by you Israel will bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh, and thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. I'm like, oh, that's where they came from. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm dying. Now we've heard this before from Jacob. <laughs> he is playing them before, but I think this time it's for real. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given you to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. I'm going to address that first and then we'll wrap things up. Wait, you took land from the Amorites? When did that happen? So we're referencing something here that is not recorded in the book of Genesis. Uh, so at some point while Jacob's over here and we're focusing on him in Egypt, they're actually fighting battles and wars back in, in Canaan. It wasn't going well for them in Canaan, except for apparently they took some land from the Amorites, but they did it by the sword and the bow. So while while the focus of the Bible has moved to Joseph, I think it was worse in Canaan than we thought it was. Like things were falling apart back there. Um, and we see that in some of the names. Like when you got some of the brothers naming their kids Destruction and Snake and Worm, I mean, clearly there's some nasty stuff going on in their lives. So uh, the writer of this told Dorth, the reason why we don't see those stories is because it's largely believed that Joseph assembled this last story that he's the one that penned this and wrote it down. Clearly, he's more literate than most of our other Toldoth writers because this is the longest of the Toldoths, and we get the most detail in this one. And uh, just to one-up them, Exodus, we're going to get even more detail as Moses starts writing. But Moses, remember, was also trained in Egypt in the court, or in the court of the Pharaoh, so he was extremely well-educated from youth and would have been a more prolific writer than Joseph would have been even. So God be with you. What an encouraging way to end this narrative and this story. What a great promise. Um, and when he says, God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers, I couldn't help it, but it's that idea of, I will be with you, comma, always. You know, it's like the end of Star Wars, right? And God will always be with you. Um, we see a veteran believer here kind of sharing the promise. Based on his life, Jacob, whose days are few and evil, the days of the years of his life have been few and evil, but he's been through all of it. He's been through the hatred of his brother that wanted to kill him. He's been through the greed of Laban who wanted to take advantage of him. He's been through arguing wives that are constantly bringing drama into his tent. And he's been through having his sons separate, worship other gods, murder people. Um, he's seen this everywhere he goes. And as he dies and he sees Joseph and has this hope again that God's plan is real, his final notes are that God will be with you, just like they've been with me. And God has seen through all of it. When I thought it was dark, when I thought it was horrible, it's not the case. So we close this chapter. You think he's about to die, but he's not going to die just this moment. He's going to give us another chapter worth of blessings because he's not done blessing people. He's going to go through each of the tribes and give them a blessing, and that's what we'll talk about next time because I have 
exhausted my notes for tonight. But you still, I, I think it's a long ending. It's kind of that long, drawn-out kind of, we're saying goodbye to the last of the three mighty patriarchs. The reason why that we don't have more patriarchs is because now there's 12, right? We went from single blessing sons to now we have 12 sons that are going to get a blessing and we start building a nation, which was the promise of Genesis is that there would be a new country. So here we are, and then in chapter 49, we'll go through all those blessings, and then in 50, I think we 50 is largely the brothers worrying about what Joseph's going to do when dad's dead. Because they were thinking like he's protecting us because of dad, and when dad dies, they're all nervous. So he, Joseph will give him a final assurance, and this is why we think Joseph put it together and not Jacob, is that we have chapter 50 as part of Genesis, which Joseph would have known, but Jacob would be dead for. Um, so we'll wrap up those two chapters and I think we'll actually get through both chapters next week and we'll be done with Genesis. Uh, but let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for a man like Jacob that struggled his whole life. We thank you that he found you in the end and even as an old man, he's just using his position as a, the old geezer in the family, Lord, to just bless people, to pass that love and that hope on to the next generation. Lord, we thank you for those people in our life that are old um, that have shared their faith with us. We thank you with those who have gone before us in our families and even out of our families, Lord, that have just been steady in the faith, that have been consistent in the faith. And Lord, we want to grow up to be like that. Lord, help us to be old people that share love and grace with everyone we know. That when you walk into our tent, Lord, that we're going to put a blessing on you, whether or not you want it. <laughs> but just thank you for those people, our grandparents and our great-grandparents that have been consistent in the faith through so many hardships. Lord, we can't even imagine what some of the generations have gone through before us, but we thank you for those people. We thank you for the blessing in our lives that we have because of them. Lord, we thank you for Joseph and his consistent leadership, his leadership with grace, his power with a soft touch, and what a gift that is, and what a blessing it is to see good government and not abusive government. And we just can't wait till you return, Lord. And you promise that there will be a government under your law and under your authority, and we can't wait for it. Um, we would love to see your graceful hand as good and a perfect and a just judge in this world. We've got too many screwed up governments, too much abuse, too much just sickness around the world when it comes to humans doing what they want. And Lord, we know that's not what you intended for us. It wasn't what you designed, and it wasn't what you made for us. So we Pray for your speedy return, Lord. We can't wait for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.